Hey, welcome to the Edge broadcast. Thanks. Happy to be be joining you. All right. Uh, good to see you here, man. We're going to be talking about uh, your upcoming book, actually, The Manifold Beauty of Genesis One, and some of your other books there. And I, I've got some questions. My goal tonight, Doctor, is to stump you. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know might not I... have to try very hard, depending on what direction you go. Okay. I don't know if I can do that or not. But anyway, welcome to the program. I'll tell you what, before we get going, why don't you tell the folks a little bit about yourself? Uh, so, as you mentioned, um, I'm a professor at the University of Mississippi. I've been the chair of the Department of Geology and Geological Engineering for the last eight years, uh, actually finishing out 25 years total. Um, relocated to Mississippi from the University of Arizona, uh, where I did my PhD work, met my wife, had uh, got all four of my kids started there. Uh, had the privilege of actually doing some of my PhD work in the same lab that dated the Shroud of Turin nice. uh, and the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I mean, there's some fascinating stories uh, associated with, with the Dead Sea Scrolls and the ages of those uh, related to the, the, the truth of scripture. Mm -hmm. um, raised my kids all here at the, all my former kids went to the Ole Miss, University of Mississippi, went to the football game today against Arkansas, and it, it was actually remarkable because we were uh, we were thoroughly enjoying all of the TV timeouts, and but it was frustrating because they kept getting interrupted by football. Mm. Uh, just I, I don't know why they they have to insert football in between all of the copious TV timeouts, but that's mm -hmm. that's the reality we live in. Mm -hmm. So uh, I am a follower of Jesus. I have been uh, from my earliest memories. My two grandfathers were both preachers, uh, happened to be in the Assembly of God denomination, though they, they recognized that they were Christians in many more de denominations than just those two. Mm -hmm. And my father was a, a biology professor at a community college, so I, I kind of grew up with this really odd but wonderful uh, this world that took both of those, gave me a love and appreciation for both the scripture mm. and God's natural creation. Mm. Well, I, I don't know how much you heard earlier, but I, I actually, the, the show's, I, I took a hiatus and the show, uh, me and the wife, we went out west on a month-long trip and man, I mean, we're talking Glacier, Grand Teton, Bridger Teton, Yellowstone, uh, Custer State Park. I mean, we, we and, and, and every time I saw that stuff, and I, I don't know if you heard what I said, but it, it just reminds me of that scripture that says that nature itself declares that there is a God and therefore all are without repentance, you know? So for those that say there is none, and it's just, I always think, I think, so somebody's looking at this same mountain, this valley, this, this incredible valley and the falls falling down and bison going through. And they're thinking, man, it was good that that primordial swamp had all the instructions uh, in the DNA for everything to come out of that soup and create these all these uh, trees and, and the fauna and then the animals, you know. I mean, do they think that? Do they literally think that? Well, you've got uh, both. So, of course, there's a great spectrum of positions that people will take on origins questions. And at one extreme, you do have the atheistic worldviews where they just think that all of this somehow just came to be and that there was it wasn't even really a beginning because many of them think that that even with the traditional big bang model which does posit a beginning to this universe 
that surely there was something that must have come before that and then something that came before that and that we just had these quantum fluctuations in the the in some other universe and the multiverse is just producing all of these various universes those do have mathematical bases that they will develop those models from but the interesting thing about them is that they can't be tested mm-hmm. so everything else that we we say about the history of the earth and the universe that we live in we can actually apply tests and experimentation to determine if the evidence supports or challenges those models. Mm-hmm. There's nothing you can do to test the multiverse model. Mm-hmm. So it just requires basically it's it's mathematical faith that something must have existed in the uh, forever into the past. Mm-hmm. And actually, we uh, in the book that we'll get to some of that is is addressed. Mm-hmm. Of course, you've got on, on the other end of the spectrum, you do have uh, disagreements among Christians who are scientists who believe in the Bible, with some of them saying that, yes, the Bible is is true and it's, and it's a, a scientific document that we need to read as a scientific doc- document, and others saying that, no, it's a lot richer than just science, mm-hmm. uh, and that the, that the science that we look at is actually telling a parallel story that's not actually in conflict with with the scripture mm-hmm. that a lot of the traditional science you see is not necessarily in conflict with scripture as people will suggest that it is mm. uh, as a university professor uh, do you uh, take heat for some of your views um, I've taken pers- heat definitely for my Christian views um, I have not taken much heat for my scientific views, uh, even though I have, I, I, I mean, I'll teach classes in uh, Earth history, for example, where we'll talk about some of the development of these ideas. And when, just as an example, when a lot of the textbooks will make fun of Bishop Usher for saying that the universe was created 4,000 years ago. I'll, I'll remind students that at the time that was written, there was no evidence that suggested otherwise. And everyone, I mean, Bishop Usher was considered one of the, the, the uh, great theologians and thinkers of his time and highly respected by both Christians and non-Christians. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he wasn't the buffoon that, that he's made out to be today. So, you know, I, I'm looking at your the book online there, and I, I like the way that you, your your approach seems to be a multi-layered approach to. And I don't want to say I don't know if you use the word interpretation of of Genesis one in particular, but there certainly are different constructs of of, of that what it really means. And you, it seems like you're trying to maybe bring a little unity between the the, the opposing camps. There is that. Very insightful. <laughs> That's exactly what we're, we're aiming for. That uh, the book kind of derived from a recognition that with pretty much any other scripture, if you talk to a Christian about the, the meaning of that's found in scripture, that they'll speak of the richness of scripture, that you can read the same passage six times and mm-hmm find something new in the in the seventh or in the tenth or hundredth reading uh, that it's not a monochromatic text and yet when it comes to Genesis because there's been so much angst and fear and a sense of need of defending that singular text that it's kind of devolved into even infighting within the church 
of trying to pick a particular understanding of Genesis 1, defending that against all others, and it results in a lot of internal and, in our opinion, unnecessary conflict. And of course, I say I, because this book is not just written by me. I teamed up with Ken Turner out of Toccoa Falls College, who is an Old Testament um, and Hebrew scholar. Um, I think there's a scripture, maybe in the book of Psalms, says, God speaketh once, yea, he speaketh twice. There is, there is, is in another passage, I believe it says, it's a matter of kings to, to seek a matter out. Um, so, I mean, I think God wants us to look for the deeper meanings, and I've always felt that if we couldn't get to the meaning, it's because maybe the Spirit of God hasn't revealed it to us. How much do you think it is that pure study from a maybe a, a mental standpoint versus a revelation from, say, a spiritual standpoint would bring us to a revelation exactly what is being said or its best interpretation? Yes. Okay. All right. Yeah, no. I'll, I'll elaborate more on that. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's both. That okay. if I approach Scripture and sort of hold the Spirit at, at arm's length and say, I'm going to just use reason and logic to understand this, uh, I, I'm not likely to see what it is that God has intends, right? It, the words by themselves are, are not going to have the impact that God intends without His Spirit moving. So that requires a sensitivity, an openness to God's leading to see what the, the, the intention of these passages is. Mm -hmm. And part of that is being willing to get past my own or through my own biases to recognize that I, I am bringing bias to the text. And as much as I'd like to, to claim that I don't have any biases, I, I, I do. The fact that we have been raised in a 21st century Western culture brings with it a certain set of baggage that influences how we read scripture. Now, I, I have to, to be careful there because it can make it sound like, oh, you know, who, who could possibly understand scripture if that's all true? There are parts of scripture, the essential parts of scripture, that are very clear in their message those things that are required for a knowledge of salvation and things like the deity of Christ are spelled out very, very explicitly. It does not take a lot of energy or time in order to, to apprehend those. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the rest of scripture is not as easily understood. Gregory the Great, uh, one of the early popes back in the sixth century, uh, actually did a commentary on Job where he described the book of Job as a river that was shallow enough in which a lamb could wade and deep enough that an elephant could swim. And, and he actually then worked through the book of Job in layers, approaching the text from different perspectives and seeing what was the spirit was telling us through that text in that multi-layered approach. Mm -hmm. So we're doing something similar with, with Genesis where we're not, and I say we again, Ken and I, are not suggesting some, something mystical where the Bible means whatever you want it to mean, right? There's plenty of ways of reading the Bible wrong. But that doesn't mean that there's only one layer of understanding that we're supposed to take out of a text. So in Genesis 1, one of the problems that we have being raised in this 21st century Western society is 
several centuries of being brought up from the Enlightenment era uh, and the Reformation, where there was a transition in cultural thinking where much more importance was, was being placed on humanistic reasoning uh, and scientific thought. And through that process, there's this uh, often unrecognized assumption that scientific writing and scientific thinking is the highest form of truth. Not that science is the highest form of truth, but that scientific writing, right? The scientific, presenting something in a scientific method is the, is the highest form of truth. Mm -hmm. Therefore, if the Bible is true, it must be a science textbook. Mm -hmm. That's a bias that we are imposing on the text, not something that the text actually gives to us. Mm -hmm. So if I can step away from that and look at this text and say, what is it actually telling me and begin to look at it under a, some, a, some different perspective, different lights, then I see some wonderful and fascinating things that come out of that text that you know, each layer is not, well, you know, I can choose between layer one, two, three, four, five. They actually complement each other. Okay, uh, let me just do a little housework here. Uh, just joining us in the live chat, uh, Teflon Coat, welcome back. Uh, Fred Vanderbeek, welcome back. Uh, 38383 Stroker and Southern Boy all uh, logging in and as well into the program. If you have a question for the good doctor, just put your questions in the live chat and Jay, the moderator, sent it to us. And speaking of questions, doctor, we have this from Teflon Coat. says, um, Dr. Davidson, why are there no records from the Dark Ages, 400 years? Uh, so I'm not an expert on the history of, of that time period, uh, but from what I understand, that there are records from that time period, but that represents a, a, a series of centuries where the rate of advances in things like scientific understanding mm -hmm. was not as great. Uh, there's not as many documents that come out of that period, and so it, it kind of gets this nickname of the, the Dark Ages. Well, did they did they try to bury something there with the history? I I, I do know that uh, didn't they, like say maybe the the books of the, the Library of Alexandria. I understood that they they heated bathhouses there for six months, burning those books. Imagine what information was contained in those books. I wonder if it had information on that. Yeah, well, and again, I'm not not familiar with that particular claim, mm -hmm. uh, but that what's appropriate for for this conversation and our book is that over the last 200 years, there have been incredible archeological discoveries from Egypt, from Mesopotamia, from the lands of, of, of Canaan and, and the surrounding areas that include things like their own origin stories and their own uh, uh, you know, views of how the, the, the world is put together. And it, none of it is necessary in order to understand the, the, the fundamental message of scripture. But it is fascinating to me that the timing of these discoveries has paralleled some of the scientific discoveries, whereas scientific discoveries have the appearance, and I emphasize the word appearance, of drawing us away from the Bible. A lot of these archeological discoveries are actually answering some of the questions that are raised mm -hmm. and pulling us back into it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and hopefully as we, we talk about the, the book a little bit more this evening, we'll, we'll get into some of those details. But mm -hmm. um, it, it strikes me that when people here talk about, what, what do you mean by layers? That that's probably something we should talk a little bit about. Is that fair enough? Sure, go ahead. 
Yeah, so we've presented seven layers and we, we think of these sort of like shingles on a roof mm-hmm. where yes, each shingle is a standalone item, but one shingle doesn't do a very good job of shedding water from a roof, right? When you put all the shingles together, they, they overlap each other, but they're all, they're all serving the same function of keeping those underneath dry, uh, keeping the, 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 the elements out. So we have presented seven different layers where we recognize that a reader is not necessarily going to think that all seven resonate with them. You know, it's possible that they would read them and that they'd say, well, you know, I, I, I see four of these, not so sure about the other three. We consider that a win. Mm-hmm. We don't, it's not an all or nothing proposition because the idea is that there is more than one layer to God's message. And so we have um, some of the, the layers are, uh, we've titled the first one, The Song. Mm-hmm. that addresses some of the, the poetic elements of the creation story, the analogy of the work week, of, of God's work week to ours, uh, a polemic layer that's aimed at challenging the worldviews of the surrounding neighbors. And that's one of the places where the discoveries of those archaeological sites have really been helpful. Uh, also with the covenant, God establishing a covenant with his creation. That's another whole layer there's a temple layer where we see Eden and the establishment of, of the garden as a, a, a place where God tabernacled with his people. And there's a whole set of language that is surrounding the temple that plays into that, that also we learn some things about what that mm-hmm. meant to the surrounding people through some of those archaeological discoveries. Okay. And then we have the two others are a calendar view where you kind of see the, the, the year's agricultural cycle is played out in the week of the creation story. And then finally, uh, a, a parallel with the land where you see parallels between Canaan, the promised land, yeah. and with Eden. Mm, nice. Nice. Uh, I tell you what, uh, Doc, we got a couple uh, numbers of questions coming in. And by the way, just joining in as well, Robert Griffin, Shelley, and Diana P. all jumped into live chat, watched the program tonight. Azura says, um, Dr. Davidson, does the, do you believe in a second flood or more theory? Uh, so the, the way that question was worded made it sound like there is a particular theory uh, involving a, a second potentially global flood. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure. That's not something that I have come across, mm-hmm. but I have come across, you know, of course, in, in some of those archaeological studies, you, you do get other cultures speaking of an, an enormous flood that impacts or touches upon the known world. And it's interesting where people go with that because you've got some people that want to discount scripture that say, oh, look at that. That's evidence that Israel just borrowed. They appropriated these themes mm-hmm. from their neighbors and kind of put their own spin on it to set themselves apart. You then have other people that are trying to just to, to defend the Bible and take the opposite view and just and say, you know, oh, they just have nothing. To, they're not they're not similar at all. All of the similarities are really uh, uh, circumstantial and they just want to discount the whole thing but you've got folks in the middle 
who are believers, who are scholars, who look at this and say, hang on, if this was something that really happened, right, if there was an enormous flood that, that impacted the known world, then that's a common experience that people have, and as they disperse, they carry that story with them, and that story may evolve in other cultures, and what we think we're seeing in Genesis is God saying, you know, let, let, me, let me remind you of what actually happened. Now, having said that, you know, the people that want to make Genesis, that, that want to make science the highest form of truth, mm -hmm. and therefore want to make Genesis a science textbook, start reading things into the Bible that are not there. So when there's an insistence, say, that the, that the flood was covering the entire planet, and they look at the, the words that say cover all the earth, well, all the, the Hebrew, all the earth, does not mean a planet. It means the land. Mm. The, word, the Hebrew word is it covered the land. Wow. Mm -hmm. And it's the same phrase that's used in many places in Scripture where things like the, there was a, a drought a famine in all the land, and all of the land came to Egypt to buy food. Well, nobody thinks that people in Australia were coming to Egypt to buy food. Uh, there's there's wording of Nebuchadnezzar being the ruler of all the earth, but it's wow. all the land, all of that that region, all of the known uh, nations at the time. Okay, all right, Bear, uh, the the uh, Bear that gives our uh, report, he asks a question. He says, "What do you mean manifold beauty?" So the word manifold is, uh, for car enthusiasts, it is not a piece of equipment in your engine. <laughs> manifold simply means many. So it is the many layered beauty of Genesis 1. And it's, it's trying to emphasize that there is so much more to Genesis than just conversations about what is the length of a day. Mm. Okay. And then we have this question. Uh, I've asked this question before multiple times in, on this show, but I'd like to hear different guests' options or, or opinions. If God banished Cain for killing Abel to be with others, who are the others? Uh, so we do have like an hour and a half to answer that question, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, you, so, you may begin. Well, we'll keep keep it uh, simpler. Yes. So that that's that's an excellent question. Uh, one that theologians have pondered for generations, right? That's not a question that has uh, just come up in with some of the scientific questions that have uh, arisen. Uh, but even before conversations about uh, things like evolution, there were discussions among Christian theologians about the existence of other people okay. that might or might not even have been endowed with the image of God. In other words, you know, did did God create um, by whatever process? You know, did God create all of these organisms, including hominids? You know, so when you see that there's mm. fossil record of of hominid creatures, you know, were you know, did God consistent with where we see in other places of Scripture, where He simply selects an individual? Right? He selected mm -hmm. Abraham. We're not told why. Uh, he selected Jacob. We're not told why. <laughs> um, he, did God select 
one of those to make in his image and die with a soul. And then when Cain and Abel, or when Cain is then banished, he's encountering some of these individuals that look like people, but maybe maybe we're not what we think of mm-hmm. as soul-bearing creatures. Mm. All so right. that's I want to emphasize no, that's, that that's no. not that's that's not something that I'm saying did happen. I'm just saying that's uh, right. part of a conversation. Right. Part of I like that part of a conversation. Okay, uh, Rose says, uh, Doctor, who were who are the Elohim? Are they the fallen angels or other gods? No one has really explained this to me. Who they really are. Uh, so that I actually write about that in the book Friend of Science, Friend of Faith. Mm. Uh, so if, if so, in uh, the manifold beauty of Genesis one, there is virtually no science at all. The whole focus is on the beauty of Genesis, uh, approached from these various perspectives. In Friend of Science, Friend of Faith, that's going into the apparent conflicts between science and Christian faith, mm-hmm. with the idea not just of you know what is the current conflict. It actually tries to provide a a method of walking through scripture for any apparent conflict when science seems to conflict with the Bible and asking a series of questions that that are trying to get at that bias that I talked about at the beginning. You know, my my reaction to a conflict may actually be more because of a cultural bias than because of what the scripture is actually telling me. Uh, So in talking about the the Elohim uh, or the sons of God, the daughters of men, the, if we actually go back to that earlier question, you know, could there have been human looking creatures that were around that were not in the image of God? Uh, They would have been strange flesh. They would have been, uh, God would have said, you're not to, and maybe biologically you could reproduce with them, but they are, they're not, humans in the sense that we think of biblically uh humans are really good at ignoring god's word and if they ignore that and have those relations then that would have been something that that god considered to be an abomination Mm -hmm. so that's that's one of at least four different possible explanations for who the sons of god and daughters of men were Mm Uh, interestingly on on my uh on my trip out west i saw several anomalies uh that I'm going to kind of maybe put a couple things together. Uh, one of them was an archaeological dig that I went to in uh, Hot Springs and um, uh, uh, Hot Springs, uh, uh, I think it was Wyoming or Montana. Let me think. Where, oh, that was in uh, South Dakota, Hot Springs, South Dakota. Well, this thing, it's in the background now. And what it is, it's, um, it's an archaeological dig that has approximately 61 mammoths in it. And uh, they've been digging on this for years, and they put a, a building over it. It's it's, it's an amazing place because it's 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 right now archaeology. These things you're looking down into history. It's not like a mock-up. These are actual bones. But within those bones, they also found um, llamas and camels, or at least a llama and a camel, which you would think would be an out of, out of place object. Now I'm going to bring up another picture of something else I saw when I was in uh, uh, Yellowstone. And uh, this uh, is what is, uh, where is it? Oh, here it is. I got to get in the picture, picture frame. Okay, it's a petrified giant redwood from California that's in Yellowstone. Now, both of those seem to be out of place objects. 
I have a conjecture, doctor, and you can say that's a ridiculous scientific analogy, but could it have been that at one time the earth was covered in a, a vapor canopy and that the redwoods in California were growing in California, or they were growing in Utah, Wyoming, Indiana, uh, and llamas were also running around with other animals. Is it possible that this so-called, and that created, say, a worldwide terrarium effect where everything, if you ever have a terrarium, you know that's the best way to grow plants. They grow exceedingly large. But I'm, I'm just saying, could that have been that the vapor canopy that I described may have broken caused the great flood? Would both of these archeological uh, things that we see here go along with that theory. Yeah, so so if I can say it's something a little tangential, just as a, a personal interest, yeah. before I, I address that question, uh, that dig site in South Dakota is fascinating for, for more than just what you see there. The, the guy who developed that was brilliant. He was a paleontol is a paleontologist who, when he was made aware of this treasure trove of fossils, and acquired this land, he set up a, a warehouse with uh, cranes over the top that could go and, mm -hmm. and be able to uh, drop and pick up things, you know, massive skulls, pick them up. And at the same time, set it up to almost as if it were a national park and charged admission and hired people that wear uniforms that kind of look like a national park uniform. Mm -hmm. And and he's not he's not buffaloing anybody. I mean, he's he, he, he's honest about what he's doing. Mm -hmm. But he then funds his archaeological digs or his, his paleontology digs with these admissions and can work in the summer in South Dakota in an air-conditioned warehouse on, on this, this dig site and get people to volunteer and come in and help dig. It, it's brilliant. Mm -hmm. Uh, okay, so uh, that aside, the uh, there's several things that can be said about the question. Uh, in terms of the, the vapor canopy, that was a, a common uh, young earth position maybe 30 years ago or more that, that actually has kind of fallen out of vogue, that, that if you get on the young earth creation sites, they, they don't really make that claim anymore for a variety of reasons. Okay. Uh, and one of them is when you're thinking of things as out of place, that it's, it's fairly easy to make pieces fit together when you just look at a few isolated, and when I say you, I mean generically you, uh, a few yeah. isolated pieces of information. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you start putting all the pieces together, it becomes harder to support something like a vapor canopy theory because if you look at, say, you know, these places where it looks like you have preserved fossils from a lush forest, mm -hmm. well, you go into deeper layers and they're gone. And then you go maybe into deeper layers still and they're back again. So you actually see these cycles in various parts of the earth where you have very wet, wet rainy uh, climates that mm -hmm. are supporting these lush forests and then climate shifts and you, you've got drier conditions and it's not supporting that same thing. So you don't have a single layer about the earth that preserves this record of, of you know, lush conditions. Mm -hmm. Okay, and just, just, in a, just a rabbit hole aside, I see in the live chat somebody said the, the Crazy Horse uh, Monument in South Dakota is a tourist scam. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, See, the biggest thing that concerns me about the Crazy Horse Monument mm -hmm. is 
natural rock is full of fractures and joints mm -hmm. and they're undermining they're tunneling under these long extensions of rock that i'm afraid eventually could lead to collapse well because they haven't accounted for that well so we went to rushmore and man on a beautiful blue sky day we were able it's free we mm -hmm. were able to go on a trail right under George's nose, man. There's a trail right at the bottom of that thing. And it's, it's just a beautiful set. And by the way, I, I highly recommend for anybody going there, get the ice cream with the original Thomas Jefferson recipe. Um, you'll never go back to regular vanilla. But anyway, that was all free. Then I went over to Crazy Horror because it's like, you're supposed to, 30 bucks to get in. And then you're a half a mile away from the thing and they want more money to take you to the monument, um, and I, uh, I said, okay, okay, there got to be diversity here. You know, gotta, I got to calm down here. But no, I, I may have to agree with that. There, by the way, if you look at it in 1997, it's exactly like it is right now. So I, I don't know. But they're getting thirty dollars ahead, and everybody who goes to South Dakota goes there. That's got to be a million dollar, multi million dollar money breaker right there. All right, um, oh, just you have a statement. Oh, let me get this. Joining us in the live chat, Max Vogan, Believe 3.0, Pony Red 2000, Gil, Franklin, my dear, and King's Bride, all welcome to the program. Doctor, go ahead and comment. Uh, was was something directed at me? No, I thought it looked like you're going to get. I was I was ranting there a little bit. I thought you were going to say something. Okay. Oh, 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 oh. All right, back to questions. Um, Franklin, my dear, says, Doctor, what do you think the age of the Earth actually is? So before I just answer that. Uh, getting back to letting the Bible speak for itself mm -hmm. rather than imposing a, 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 a view on Scripture, uh, where there's this assumption, right, that, that we've brought to it that it's – if the highest form of, of truth is science, then the Bible must be science. Therefore, we have to read it as if it's a scientific text. And when we do that, we actually strip away a lot of its – of the incredible beauty and poetry that's in that text. And before anybody thinks that the word poetry is synonymous with mythology or not truth, untruth, like many Hebrew scholars have noted that the, as much as a third of the Bible is written in poetic form, that when you go into Genesis and you start seeing even simple things like the, the, the use of the number seven, Right. Mm -hmm. Most of us were taught in Sunday school that, mm -hmm. that seven was a number that represented perfection. Well, it was a whole lot more than that for the Hebrew culture to the degree uh, that when you – if you actually look at the Hebrew in Genesis 1 and start looking at things like the, the opening phrase is uh, seven – I'm going to make sure I don't say this wrong. Uh, yeah, the initial declaration is seven Hebrew words. The second declaration of being formless and void is 14 words, two times seven. You've got all of those phrases like it was so, it was good, the firmament, the earth, each of those 21 times, three mm -hmm. times seven. Mm -hmm. God mentioned 35 times, which is five times seven, and then it all sums up with uh, – the statement of God creating the heavens and the earth and blessing on the seventh day, 35 words, five times seven. So that by itself should speak to us and say, wait a minute, you know, th th this is something 
that is greater, that is deeper, that is more beautiful than a scientific text. And then, and so I'm going to go into a little bit of the first layer of the book, The Manifold Beauty of Genesis 1, which is the song, which notes that the story starts off with rhyming words of formless and empty, which is tohu wabohu. Following those rhyming words, which again, you've got this wordplay, this poetry, poetic uh, uh, statements, you get three parallel days where the first three days solve the problem of formlessness, where you have the forming the realm of light and dark, mm -hmm. forming the realm of sea and sky, forming the terrestrial realm complete with plants that are necessary to support life. Then you have three days, parallel days, that solve the empty problem, where God fills mm. the realm of light with sun, <clears throat> moon, and stars. Mm -hmm. He fills the realm of sea and sky with fish and birds. He fills the, the terrestrial realm with animals and man and finishes it with a day of rest that, oh, by the way, God doesn't need. Right, right, right. Yeah, and when you even look at the structure of those days, you know, you get that repeating pattern of God said, it was so, it was good. That repeats in days one and two, five and six, or th four and five. But days three and six, the end of each of those three parallel days, have double sets, emphasizing that day three is the completion of forming. Day six is the completion of the days of filling. Okay. And when you see that beauty in that poetic structure, you realize that this isn't this isn't about the the how. This is about who. This is about telling us that God's not just somebody that made stuff. He made the very realms in which things can exist. And he's communicating it in this beautiful poetic form. Uh, so with that's a long-winded background to say that once I realized that Genesis is, is, is not focusing on the how, that I realized that, okay, if I now believe Romans, which I believe you quoted uh, early in this, you know, before I came on, that God's character and nature are manifest in his creation, that the works of God's hands are declared in his creation. That means that when I study the earth, I can anticipate and expect that it's going to reflect its creator and tell a rational and communicate a, a truthful story, that it's not, what I see is not going to trick me. Mm. And, and, I, and so it's just it's beautiful to me then when I see things like in cosmology that even though you know, at, at one time Einstein, who thought that along with his contemporaries that the, the universe was infinite in time, and his own calculations and equations suggested that no, there, there was a beginning point in which the universe started. And as a and at first he fought it, said no, no, he inserted a, a special variable into his equation that accounted, made, made his, the, the model of the universe static. But then as the data was coming in, it's like, no, the universe is expanding. And the farther away you look, the faster stuff's going away. You turn the clock backwards, and there was a starting point that's mm. consistent with this message of there, the universe was not eternal. God is responsible for what we see. So when I look at things like the age of the Earth, 
you know, I'm, I'm not looking at somebody's worldview to determine, you know, did, what, what do you need the age of the earth to be? I'm actually taking Romans 1 seriously and looking at what what is the earth, what what is the data, what's the evidence in the earth that's communicating its history that God has made. And all of the evidence is pointing to a very ancient earth of about four and a half billion years. Mm-hmm. And you don't see you don't see that conflicting where it says uh, when you talk about the days, I know that some people try to say each day is as, as a, a thousand years, so therefore, you know, six thousand years. But clearly, um, you know, in, in fact, in that uh, archaeological dig, they've got actually uh, little little stickers that say this is 150,000 years ago. Then go down further is 190,000 years ago. It's clearly not 6,000 years ago. But again, I, interesting you said, that's an interesting frame there where you said, how old do you need it to be? I, oh, I don't need... I don't want something to fit my worldview. I want I want revelatory truth, and if it's deeper than just a year, I'm all for it. And we got so many questions in here. We're not going to be able to get to them all because we, we want to continue talking about your book. But let's get a couple in there, if we can. Um, the question says: Has man cracked the firmament? Firmament, and if so, what is your opinion on the shape of the Earth? Yes. So, it, what's fascinating? One of the many things that's fascinating is you know going back to the manifold beauty of Genesis 1 that one of the other layers is the polemic uh, the challenge of uh, that's presented against the religions of the surrounding nations so from those archaeological discoveries you know, we, we see the Egyptian creation stories and Mesopotamian Canaanite uh, you know Hittite uh, various surrounding nations that all viewed the origin of the world as coming from this primordial chaos Mm -hmm. that was often thought to be eternal, didn't necessarily have a starting point. Uh, And a lot of those stories are are as much stories of the creation of the gods as they are creation of the material world, right? The material world is, is often described as an accident. Uh, and the gods are made of the same stuff as the rest of the, of the universe and of humans. Um, and humans were, were made to, to do things that the gods didn't want to do. And you've got this wonderful contrast in Genesis 1 and 2 that, that when you realize what these ancient cultures were saying, that it's like Genesis 1 and 2 just goes off one, one by one. And just each one of them says, no. If there's not a pantheon of gods there is one creator god and oh by the way this god doesn't need a backstory <laughs> he is self-existent he, he, uh, he didn't need he doesn't need a pr firm yeah yeah, yeah. so uh, and you know god's not made of the same stuff as everything else he is transcendent he is not mm-hmm. continuous with the creation mm-hmm. and humans were not an afterthought or just made to to do the things he didn't feel like doing they were very intentional creations that he declared to be in his image and desired their company. Mm. So given all of that, this polemic against what the, the nations around them were, were believing, it's interesting to see what's not challenged. Right? We, we, we see that their understanding of the structure of the cosmos, that they just looked around them and 
you know, they, they don't see a sphere. They see what seems to be, you know, maybe a domed or flat surface. They know that if they go far enough in any direction, there are seas. They look above and the sky seems to be arched. Uh, they get, you get rain that comes from up there somewhere and they speak of things like mm -hmm. the, the, the earth being built on pillars and that the, the, the gods travel on this firmament that's up above, you know, that's this mm -hmm. solid dome that's above the, the surface of the earth. And then you go and you look at the, the biblical examples or descriptions of the cosmos of the earth and they're the same. And, <laughs> wow. it, and you step back and you're like, wait a minute. And again, you know, th this gets back to the, you know, how do people react to that? So you've got the atheists that want to discredit the Bible that just say, there, see, Bi Bible's teaching yeah. falsehood. You know, it's just, mm -hmm. it's just antiquated history. Mm -hmm. You've got the ones that are wanting, on the opposite side, that are trying to discount the discounters and, and trying to say, no, 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 no. The firmament really means the heavens and the Israelites actually knew that the earth was a, a, a sphere and it was suspended. There, there's, there's one verse that talks about it being suspended from nothing and, and working very hard to try to say that, that, that it's a, it is teaching science, even though it looks like it's agreeing with everything that the surrounding people have said. Well, again, you've got Christian Bible-loving scholars that come in and say, hang on, those extremes are not the right way to be looking at this. If I look at the scripture and say, what, what is God intending to do here? Is he intending to teach and instruct on nature? Well, if he is, then yeah, we need to be reading this stuff and believing that the earth's built on, on pillars and that the sky's got a solid dome over it and on all these other things. But most of these people will say, no, God is simply tapping into the common knowledge of the people at the time mm -hmm. to illustrate eternal truths about the kingdom of God and his interaction and interest in his people. That the intention is not to correct their erroneous understanding of how nature works. Mm -hmm. God is simply making use of their understanding. And we mm -hmm. see that all through scripture, whether it's something as small as seeds, where Jesus talks about a mustard seed being the smallest of all seeds and seeds when they fall to the ground they die to produce many fold we know mustard seeds are not the smallest seeds we know that seeds don't die no jesus was not teaching error he was simply identifying their understanding at the time to illustrate eternal truths about mm -hmm. the kingdom of god mm -hmm. if he had said things like well i know you think the mustard seeds the smallest of all seeds they completely miss the point, mm -hmm. right? They'd be like, "What? What do you mean? What do you mean? What? What? What's? Mm. What are you talking about?" They get completely distracted away from what the intention of the message mm. is. And by the way, do we not understand that passage now because we know that mustard seeds are not the smallest of all seeds? Well, of course well, not. Well, I'll tell you what I. Uh... I've been trying to grow uh, cardinal plants. It's a beautiful, it's a, one of the brightest red plants you can have. And it is so bright red that uh, hummingbirds will hit that more than they'll hit the feeder. But the seeds are, they're like a grain of sand, man. And so what I, I, and here's how I discovered how to broadcast them. Take some sand in a bag and then put these seeds in there, shake it up and then broadcast it that way. But it's a pretty small seed. But let me ask you something, uh, doctor. Are, are you a warming earther or a weather guy? Uh, I don't think I've ever heard it asked that way before. Uh, as a geologist, 
that that looks at the, the record recorded in the Earth's layers, uh, the the history of the Earth is change. Mm -hmm. There is no such thing as as the correct climate or mm -hmm. a a stable climate. We we have been blessed, I think, providentially blessed by a multi-millennial period of, of stability, uh, but that's not the Earth's norm. So could I buy into the Earth being in a warming trend? Absolutely. Um, are all warming trends going to be somebody's fault? That's a completely different, that's a completely different question. Because mm -hmm. as a... That was a leading question, man, because I'm going to tell you something what happened to me. So we just, we decided to take a, a, a hike way up this mountain to Hidden Lake, man, right in, in, in Glacier. And uh, I got way up in there. And then you there's a, an exhibit, and it shows uh, an embossed picture of the glacier that you're looking at 50 years ago. And then on the same exhibit, on, on that's on the right, on the left is that same glacier with with a lot of snow missing but in what i'm in the background what i'm looking at that day there was more snow than there was on the exhibit that was showing 50 years ago i'm thinking well the, the 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 image on the left was probably taken in summer when the snow melted but i was thinking wait a minute man somebody's pulling my chain here and you know how i know that's true you may not know this but in the in the 90s 2000s glaciers start putting up these exhibits that said all these glaciers i think 61 they will be gone by the year 2020 and they had i think they had those exhibits up until last year and of course the most of the glaciers are still there and so they had to go and get funding to, to reword those exhibits now they say they will uh go away sometime in the future but but for 20 years they've been saying oh it's up by the year 2020 we're done just that's just a little aside something i happen to notice yeah, well, w one thing that uh, I find interesting about human nature, and and I, I can find things to be critical of for a lot of different groups, uh, not not just just one, but with you know, among my atheistic colleagues, that uh, on one hand we'll talk about the resiliency of of life and its adaptability, mm -hmm. which I agree with when it comes to this issue of changing climate that it's suddenly alarmist that all of these these creatures are not going to be able to adapt and survive under different conditions and it, it there's a those don't match if if life is really adaptable then we're going to see changes in the structures of populations with some declining some increasing some decrease some populations decreasing some expanding um, but but life is as God has made it is amazingly adaptable. Mm -hmm. We have post postscript on that. I believe uh, they just uh, found that a Antarctica recorded the coldest temperature on record. Uh, they have a problem with that one there. All right, let's get uh, another yeah. question. Uh, can, I, can I jump in just one second though? Yeah. Uh, uh, on subjects like that, it is important for me to note that given our sin nature, we are very good at failing in our calling to be stewards and caretakers of the garden of mm -hmm. God's creation mm -hmm. and and we we slip into this notion that oh when we're supposed to subdue and and uh, the earth 
to think that that means that we can basically pillage the earth for our own benefit mm -hmm. without care or concern for those that come after us. Right. Uh, and actually, that, that is one of the things that I also address in, Ken and I address in The Manifold Beauty of Genesis 1, nice. that one of the layers with the covenant layer mm -hmm. draws us, increases our awareness that God made us stewards of his creation. And we do actually be need to be paying attention to things that we might be doing that mm. fail in that duty. To, to, to your point of, of, the, of, of the human nature, uh, and you probably already know this, but in some of the, the Yellowstone uh, acidic pools, they've cooled because people have been throwing crap into those pools, blocking the, the flow and change, it changes the colors and it stops. I mean, I, I can't tell you how angry that makes me to know that people would yeah. do that. In fact, when I showed that petrified uh, tree, that the giant redwood, there were actually three, but people kept going up there and they were chipping away at them for souvenirs. So that, uh -huh. that's your point. I, I, yes. Nobody, I can't, I, I, I don't know why the, those, you talk about two kind of sides. Why is it, one side's kind of captivated nature in that way, but the other side knows the guy who made that nature and he did call us to to subdue it. And what I what I see that is maintain it, grow it, yes. nourish it. That's what I read about it. And I can't, you know. And now instead of seeing cigarette masks or, or cigarette butts all over the place thrown out the door, now you're starting to see masks all over the highway. So it's getting <laughs> yeah, it's getting creepy. Yeah, so we're yeah, we're we're actually. I mean, we look at the wording of Adam and Eve placed in the garden. That they weren't placed in the garden to recline and sip on pina coladas by the by the beach that they were given a task of keeping and working the garden and there's an implicit command that by being in god's image that they are bringing order to the creation the, the wild beauty mm -hmm. and so we're left to kind of speculate on what those things might have been but you can you can imagine lots of things with making attractive floral beds, uh, bringing in irrigation, wh whatever kinds of things that take the natural beauty that's there mm -hmm. and bring order to it. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll tell you who's not bringing natural beauty to it is Billings, Montana. When I was going through there, Yellowstone River goes right through that town and there are factories right along that river. I was thinking, man, can you guys find another place to put a stinking factory? All right, so let's get uh, some more questions here before I, before I, before I uh, hurt myself. Um, Dr. Who, this may not be in your purview here, but we'll go with it. Uh, who do you think made the pyramids? Uh, so I'm, I'm left to speculate a little bit about the intention of that question because obviously most people would say, well, the Egyptians, of course. Uh, but I think she's, that, that person may be asking, do I think it, it involved the work of either, uh, you know, the, the slaves primarily mm -hmm. or aliens? Uh, and I, I would not put myself into the opinion that extraterrestrial life forms mm -hmm. came and, and built the pyramids. I mm -hmm. do think that those were built by the Egyptians, uh, both themselves and slave labor. Uh, mm -hmm. Though that's not to say that I don't, I categorically reject the possibility of there being other life forms in this universe. Mm -hmm. In fact, I, 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 some of your readers are probably would be interested in another little side project that I have done just for fun, which Ooh. is writing in a, a science fiction trilogy that actually is, I, I refer to it as a parable of spiritual warfare, mm. where mm. aliens 
that come from a world that, that can move in, in four spatial dimensions come to Earth. They're a small party. They'd like to live with us. We're too ornery. They decide they need to clear out space for themselves to exist. And the only way they can figure out how to do that is to turn people against themselves. And they start figuring it, realizing that they can pose as spirit guides and departed mm. ancestors. And so mm -hmm. it, it's a it's a way of. Are you, are you sure that's science fiction? Yeah. Well, <laughs> th th it's funny you say that because the it, the book was released in 2018. And there's a, a statement in the beginning that says, you know, not, nothing in this book is intended to be prophetic. Then again, mm. dot, dot, dot. <laughs> maybe you draw your yes. own conclusions okay right here's a great question uh does genesis 1 give any clue about jesus or his return um not directly but when you start digging into these layers that we write about y you actually see the groundwork being laid that starts that then makes the later manifestation makes sense mm -hmm. so in the temple layer you know we, we we tend to think of temples as just a building that people go to to worship a particular god the ancient near eastern sense of a, te a temple was so much more than that the the mm -hmm. temple was often associated with a mountain where you have this kind of this cosmic mountain sense where the god you know the heavens and earth meet uh, and this god would make his presence dwell in that temple mm -hmm. so that he's coming down and walking among and and it's often referred to as his resting place and that that phrase resting is is important so we when we then see god coming and meeting uh abraham or excuse mm -hmm. me moses mm -hmm. on mount sinai you've got this mountain uh, uh symbolism You've got God coming down and and tabernacling with his people. Mm -hmm. And eventually when they are in Israel, the temple is built on Mount Zion. So you're, you're maintaining that, that mountain uh, uh, symbolism. And you look and all through scripture, you see phrases of God dwelling with his people, walking with his people, resting with his people. So then when Jesus comes... You see the ultimate sense of God dwelling, walking, resting with his people that will just be uh, culminated in that ultimate return and the temple that you read about in Revel both Revelation and uh, Ezekiel mm -hmm. coming down and being established on earth where, where the temple basically fills the earth and mm -hmm. God's residence and resting places with his people and 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 you see that whole idea of even going into canaan of the idea of entering into my rest mm. is all of those little pieces are connected all the way back to eden and god walking in the garden with his people man man doctor you keep talking like that revival is going to break out on the air right here <laughs> All right, here's uh, some more questions real quick. Um, if the body is a temple of God, where above does he and the Father dwell in the body? So in, the, in similar ways to what we were just talking about, mm -hmm. 
that you know Israel had a tabernacle that was in in which the presence of God filled and later there was a temple and we read of an occasion where the 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 presence of God filled the temple and even though it's spoken of repeatedly as God's dwelling place God's resting place it's also very clear to Israel you know whether it's to to Moses or to King David or to the prophets that God cannot be contained in a building that the heavens God the heavens and earth are not big enough to contain God so you have God simultaneously filling the cosmos and yet representing himself and his presence in this tabernacle or temple so then you get into the New Testament concept of individuals being the temple of God you've got some similar things going on where I mean, this body is not cannot contain the the, the majesty of God mm-hmm. God is so much grander God fills God continues to fill the can, cosmos can, can, can the body being the temple of God contain a piece of God a part well so in, in a similar sense as the temple of old the building contained uh, an aspect of God's presence so also our bodies contain an aspect of uh, 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 of God's presence. What exactly that is, I would be very arrogant if I suggested that I could tell you exactly what that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's clearly something very substantive, very powerful, um, and, and a great blessing. Um, by the way, we did have a poll on the website here that regarding Genesis 1. There were several answers to be chosen from. Let's, let's read those out to you real quick. So Genesis 1, one the, the uh, top, there's a t- top uh, answer there for Genesis 1 answer. It is the ultimate truth, 33%. Uh, still to be understood, 33%. Explains earth origins, 11. Allegory to express spiritual truth, 11. And then made up by early writers 11 percent looks doctor we've got to work on 11 percent that believe it was just made up was genesis 1 divinely revealed uh, i believe so yes um so i would actually if i if i heard those questions and answers correctly would actually agree with both of the first two that uh, and and just say what those two were again yeah it is the ultimate truth and then still to be understood. Yeah, so I think that it is, when, and when we talk about ultimate truth, it, it is important to parse out what, what do we mean by ultimate. If we mean that it is sufficient by itself for complete understanding of all things in nature and, and science, I would hope that the answer to that's clearly no. Because even, and, and for those that might react to that, even something as simple as what is a chariot or a sheep the bible never never tells us that you will find nowhere in the bible a description of a chariot or what a sheep looks like so most of our understanding of a chariot or a sheep having never actually for a lot of us never actually seen one mm-hmm. well most of us have probably seen a sheep but we're not shepherds we get that understanding 
from a general knowledge of looking at God's creation. You go to a museum, you see a chariot, you go to a farm, you see a sheep. So the Bible is not, does not contain all knowledge. Right. But the message that it is communicating is divinely inspired truth. And the onus is on us with God's leading to allow it to speak to us as opposed to imposing on it what we think it should be saying. And oftentimes when we want to turn it into, you know, we, we, we want to, we want to nod our heads in agreement with the enlightenment and humanistic reasoning of the, the 16th, 17th century to say that science is the highest form of truth, then we're imposing that view on scripture and actually occluding part of its message. We're actually putting constraints on the word of God. Mm. All right. And we have this question uh, from uh, Azure. It says, is hell in the center of the earth in your opinion? No. No. That's, uh, that also gets back to God. So I'm going to back up just a second. When we talk about the Bible being true and or inerrant, so it is free of error, mm -hmm. that prior to any scientific uh, conflicts, there were conversations among Bible-believing theologians between something that I've called uh, comprehensive inerrancy versus a, a divine accommodation inerrancy. The comprehensive inerrancy is that idea that kind of gets back to that science being the highest form of truth. So everything that the Bible touches on, it must be intending to teach on. And if it's touching on nature, it must be intending to teach on nature. And so it must be scientifically true. Mm -hmm. Whereas divine accommodation, which the great church fathers, including people like Calvin and Augustine ascribed to, said, if, if that were true, we God would be very very small that we could get our arms around him. God is too vast to be able to do to for us to expect that he has to speak to us in ways that accommodate our ability to understand. And so if God chooses to simply make use of common understanding of nature at, at, of his audience to communicate eternal truths about his kingdom, who am I to tell him he can't do that? Mm -hmm. You know, he, if I say, oh, well, he's teaching falsehood, that's me just saying that. How do I look at God and say, oh, you, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to just use people's common knowledge of nature to communicate eternal mm -hmm. truth about your mm -hmm. kingdom. You must speak in scientific terms. That's really, I'm going to say that to God. Mm. There's an interesting question that popped up, and it has to do with, uh, we're talking about, I mentioned several times actually, the scripture that says that uh, nature declares that there is God, therefore all are responsible. But what about people in the jungle, the, the tribes in the jungle that do not know Jesus? Are they doomed, doctor? So that's a, um, that's a question that, like some of the others, right? Theologians have mm -hmm. wrestled with some of those questions from, you know, as, as long as there have been theologians. Right. Uh, I, I won't pretend to have the answer to that, but my sense is that when we have scripture that says to whom much is given, much is required, that 
if you have a culture in which the scriptures are available and a conscious choice is made to ignore those or to read it and reject it, then you have that that's that was your choice you have chosen hell for yourself for the the native in a jungle someplace that's never encountered a bible to whom much is given much is required the the, the other side of that would be to whom little is given less is required okay so if that individual is pouring their heart out to 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 the creator and asking to be to be shown his presence mm -hmm. then my my sense is that god is going to meet that person and fulfill that need it, it sounds as if you're saying in, in one respect that his grace will fill that gap uh that the person's race no he, god's grace would oh, grace would, grace yeah, yes. his grace would fill the gap yes that's my sense and yeah. and with emphasis on my sense not Right. pontificating that, that this is, uh, right. that that I'm is speaking a, gospel truth there. Yeah. Now that is almost an unanswerable there and we really won't know. But, and that's another thing, speaking about not knowing, man, is like, so, you know, you have all these, the mountains and the ranges and in a different beauty. And they'll say, well, you know, the tectonic plates did this and that, and the dinosaurs walked here and there. Look, man, when I get into the next realm there, I, I kind of want to see, I want to see Earth being made. Do you, you ever feel that way? You want to see how it was done? Oh, I, absolutely. I, I have this 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 hope and and sense that you know if because God is not constrained by time, right? Right. He he is the creator of time. He is able to you know one of the reasons why the Book of Revelation can be written or could be written two thousand years ago is because God sees the whole thing, right? He's not living in a time frame where he's looking forward and, and wondering what may come next. So if heaven is kind of being plucked out of this world in which we are constrained by time, mm -hmm. then then my imagination goes places. And, and I wonder, w will I be able to go swimming in a sea where I can see mosasaurs and some of those giant reptiles? Uh, um, marine reptiles mm -hmm. that are swimming about in the water mm -hmm. and to see some of these ancient creatures that that, right. that no longer walk the earth right. and you know like like jurassic park but, right like the, the, but, but the without worrying about a t-rex chasing me all over uh, the countryside right and then you got the recently uh, uh found woolly rhinoceros i mean mm -hmm. there's a whole spectrum of animals and creatures out there uh and uh, you know i, I just kind of want to see it I don't know. Yeah. I want to see a replay, but would it be a replay? In fact, let's go a little further with this philosophically. When we get, and I use the word up, it could be there. I don't know where, but would we then become timeless and see anything we wanted to see? Wouldn't we become timeless as well? Well, that's, that's the speculation. And that's, that's a place where my imagination will take me uh, for, for what my heaven may be like. But fortunately, I have the confidence that whatever it ends up being will be mm -hmm. awesome, even if it's not okay. quite what I was might be expecting it to be. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. Doing this show since 2004 and the thousands of interviews I've done on every every kind of topic and every kind of person that, that I've, I've been able to find, uh, it seems as if nobody's got this thing right. 
nobody, even the, you know, the near death experienced people who've been there and come back and the, those who see into the future. And then, I mean, everyone has that sort of a different, I just don't think, I think whatever it is, it's going to be completely different from the construct that we've kind of made earlier. And that goes back to that thing you said in the first hour about what do we need it to be? Uh, but I think it's going to be—it's just going to be what it is, and it's not yes. going to fit in anybody's paradigm. Nobody's going to change that and make it into. Uh, I don't think anybody's going to get what they expect. Right. Yeah, and and that kind of brings us full circle to to what the the hope was for Ken Turner and I in writing the Manifold Beauty of Genesis One. Mm -hmm. uh, that there was really a twofold hope. One was just just making people aware of the grandeur and beauty of this story that 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 has these overlapping and and uh, 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 complementary layers to it but the other was the hope that we could bring some healing to a fractured church because as people have understandably had a desire to defend scripture and and but they've forgotten about the richness that we claim that, that that scripture has and as people have tried to defend a single understanding against all others we've actually had all this infighting within the church mm. which leads to disunity leads to broken mission you know that the, the world looks inside sometimes mm. and says R really would i would i really want to be part of that <laughs> wow uh oops and yeah and saying that no, we don't. We don't have to be fighting with each other on these because they're they're complementary. If we understand them appropriately, they actually complement each other. Uh, so we're, our, our hope is maybe a bit naively, but that the church at large would move away from defending a single position to conversations about what their favorite positions are. Mm -hmm among the right the, loving the, their the brother layers. and sister in the lord while believing a little bit different than them and and allowing right. them to just not hang your hat on that so to speak and say this is it and no matter what but let me ask so so you know we've mentioned a couple of them the age of the earth and uh, the view of the seven views or so of, of genesis one to begin with i mean we could go on with so rapture pre mid post some people say two raptures or three or none right and yeah. you know there does seem to be animosity built up but is there anything that cannot be negotiated would you feel um in, in this matter oh absolutely absolutely because what, what you find in any in any discussion of doctrine there is there are core doctrines that differentiate christian from non-christian and those core doctrines are going to, I'm not necessarily going to, to list what they would all be, but they at least include things like the deity of Christ, um, the actual death and resurrection of Christ, uh, of Jesus, on our behalf. The fact that you cannot earn your salvation, that we are dependent on on the grace of, of God, of Jesus. Jesus, that sacrifice of believing in the authority of God's word. Those those are all things that are core doctrines that differentiate Christian from non-Christian. Beyond that, it's not that nothing else is true. There are many other things and questions about the Bible that I believe have a correct answer, mm -hmm. 
but they're not as always as clear and they're not as critical where you could be wrong and it's never healthy to be wrong Mm -hmm. but it doesn't necessarily disqualify you from being a genuine christian Mm-hmm. And and those could include things like you know baptism, like you know believers baptism versus infant baptism. Mm-hmm. You know I think there's a right answer to that, but I'm not going to say to somebody that disagrees with me that oh you're you're not a real Christian. Mm-hmm. If they say well you know I, I, I'm not sure Jesus is the only way, and I'm not sure he really died. All right, we can we can talk about that, but I'm not going to call you a Christian. <laughs> mm-hmm. Ooh. Ooh. No, I, I I think there has to be some sort of defining line, but the uh, frivolousness of some of these concerns undermines unity, and you know a house divided against itself cannot stand. And if yeah, it, so, I'll, I'll, I'll even so I and, and hopefully this doesn't open a can of worms uh, for for your viewers, but even on a subject like uh, adapting life over time. We, we tend to have a, a the church tends to have a knee-jerk reaction to that that you, you couldn't believe in that and be a christian but if i actually take the bible at its word and let it speak to me instead of imposing my views on it mm-hmm. and i go back to genesis 1 and i i read words like god called the earth to bring forth plants and it did god called the earth to bring forth living creatures and it did mm. Even the atheist biologists, what do they say the origin of of these life forms was? The earth. The earth was obeying God's command. Mm -hmm. So even on a subject like that, we want to be careful about just pigeonholing people as genuine Christians or not genuine Christians because they disagree with my preferred view Mm -hmm. on a a, a, a topical subject like that. Hey, maybe you can answer this question. You're at the university level and you certainly have seen the, um, the drawing of the ape to man. Have you ever seen one of that drawing of ape to man, uh, what the monkey was before he was a monkey. I mean, wh- why can't we go back the other way? Is, is it like it just starts right there? Like the monkey was the first thing there was. He jumped out of a tree. He got smart. Boom. Next thing you know, he's working on his laptop. But have you seen anything of grab- what he was before? It, yes. And the unfortunately, that particular graphic mm-hmm. is a, it, it's a, I understand why it was done, but it's actually very misleading. Um, and and not not intentionally so, but there's the impression, as you've said, that you have this sort of ape chimpanzee-looking thing that pops out from nowhere, and then it gradually over time turns into a human being. The the actual understanding of the progression of life forms that you see in in the fossil record, for example, it, it, it very much fits the Genesis story of God commanding the earth to bring things forth, and it did, mm-hmm. where y- y- rather than having a, s- a single line of this to this to this to this to this, you get it's much more of a bushy structure where you have life forms that are adapting into new environments that are increasingly difficult to, to, to inhabit. And that continues if you actually see a, a, a really fleshed out diagram would 
continue all the way up into things like lemurs, things that end up having ape-like characteristics, hominid characteristics, and eventually modern man. Hmm. So when we're talking about, and I, I like the way you put it, it, it the, the earth was commanded to bring forth these things. So would we, you know, the, I think another scripture says that all things are held together by the power of his word, by, the, by his word is like holding things yes. together, like the space between molecules. Nobody knows what that is. And there's all kinds of stuff like that going on. But would we say that then molecules or whatever makes up a, a, a DNA uh, structure would assemble itself by a force that's the same kind of force that would say that holds molecules, you know, in different positions, how different things are just seem to be doing on their own neutrons and protons spinning around doing whatever they do. Is it that, are you saying that, that when a order was given something, some force was ordered and this assembled to become say a orange tree and something else assembled to become a dinosaur uh right so the and i start sentences with so too often but uh <laughs> so what <laughs> yeah uh there's a there's a false dichotomy that is often promoted that either god made things and they appeared you know fully functional mm -hmm. or it was this random godless process that resulted in all these life forms appearing mm -hmm. and the, those as if those are the two choices and they're they're not that what we actually see in the earth and in the cosmos is a incredibly well-designed and well-engineered system where self-assembly happens routinely mm -hmm. whether it's crystal formations or the formation of proteins and so if you look at the earth as something that has been designed by god to follow his instruction to bring about these things it shouldn't surprise us that those things then actually happen. Uh, well, there is an example in science, uh, in biology, of, a, of something called, and you probably are aware of it, called a flagellum motor. Right. And they say that that is evidence of irreducible complexity, which means you can't reduce that anymore. And it, in other words, it had to be exactly what it is to begin with. It didn't assemble. It wasn't assembled course it has a rotor a stator a drive shaft a tail that spins hundred thousand right. and it shifts gears but it said these parts could not have so that's an example of irreducible complexity does that indicate that it was commanded to to appear yes yeah, yeah. that, that gets back to my my comment about false dichotomies so there was back in the william paley days the idea of intelligent design was not the modern version of intelligent design. Uh, his idea was that the system as a whole worked so well and was so well engineered that it it, it reflected, it spoke of a designer, a creator. Uh, that has evolved into the something different with the modern intelligent design movement, where instead of looking at the whole system and saying, look how well designed it is, they're saying, 
that no that that's not where you see the evidence of god where you see the evidence of god are those little things that we can't explain by natural processes that require the insertion of mm-hmm. miraculous tweaking mm-hmm. in order to make something work and it it really it actually remarkably reflects conversations that went on uh in the days of Isaac Newton with a a colleague who I'd have to look up his name to remember how to pronounce it it's a german name but they had these debates about the orbiting of the planets and Newton was kind of a predecessor of the modern intelligent design advocate where he said there are these imperfections in the orbits of the planets that god needs to periodically tweak in order to keep them in their orbits and he did that so that when we looked at it we would see evidence of god that it needs an intelligent designer and his colleagues said your view of god is way too small that you think that he would design a system that doesn't work well that it needs this periodic tweaking in order mm-hmm. to function mm-hmm. so when we're looking at something like the flagellum and saying could the flagellum on this this organism have come about by natural means if i say well no it couldn't god, god could not have designed his creation in such a way that that could have developed by natural means excuse me i to your point. I'm, really i'm going to make that declaration i would be more in agreement with newton's colleague that was saying your your view of god is too small Mm-mm. that that he has made the universe so well designed that it does not need that kind of tweaking and if in fact we look at the flagellum and look at the genetics of it and you break down the dna mm-hmm. you can actually see where pieces of that a shortened section of that dna actually works in other organisms for completely different functions so it wow. is in fact possible to break that down it, it's not irreducible complexity. Wow. Wow. It's very, very interesting. Well, Dr. Greg Davidson, we're getting near the end of the broadcast. Now, we're talking about your upcoming book, The Manifold Beauty of Genesis 1. Tell us why we should get that book and where can we get it? Uh, so you can get the, it'll be released officially on October 28th. So just a few days from now. Uh, you can get it in the, you hear the phrase, wherever books are sold. Uh, <laughs> all of the online sources if you can imagine an online source it's it's, it's available on that source uh so whether it's amazon or barnes and noble or you know your, your favorite non-giant dominating the world uh, source of, of books mm-hmm. um you can find out more at my author website which is just my name dot net that's greg with two g's so g-r-e-g-g davidson dot net and you've got the background that uh, uh, the Cosmic Cowboy has kindly posted uh, on his background where you can see examples of both my fiction, my nonfiction works that we've been talking about and also some of the, the, the fiction, the science mm. fiction trilogy. Well, these books have any there. of the kind of conversations we've had tonight, I think people would uh, be interested in that. Yeah. Well, and uh, the... As with a lot of this stuff, if you get a copy and you you feel like it, you either just enjoyed it or you learned something from it, if you post a even a very short review, whether mm-hmm. it's on Amazon or Goodreads or some of these other sites, mm-hmm. that is the way that 
that these things get attention and get into the hands of, of readers. And I honestly don't care about the, the, the income that comes from these. I, I've, I earn a decent living as a, a professor. Uh, it, uh, I, I sometimes joke that if I ever actually break even on the financial investment on my writing projects, I'll feel like it was a win. <laughs> uh, but the desire that people would actually see this stuff and benefit from it and enjoy it, that's, that's what matters. Okay, now I have a final question for you. What are you doing down in the Mississippi Swamp? So my day job, as I've, I've called it, so I, I split my time in my, so as a professor, I, I do teaching, I do research and outreach. So uh, engaging in communicating science to, to the public. Nice. So my, on the, the research side, just the regular, you know, publishing in scientific journals, most of my research is related to water and especially water in uh, the cypress swamps of Mississippi, the interaction of water, surface water with groundwater, the Mississippi River Alluvial Valley is the third most overdrafted aquifer in America. Not many people realize that. You've got the San Joaquin Valley in California, you've got the Ogallala Aquifer in the, the central states, and you've got the Mississippi River Valley Alluvial Aquifer is in the in the top three so looking at at how water is getting into the aquifer mm -hmm. the role that those cypress swamps play and looking at things like what what's the impact of changing water levels on those mm -hmm. trees and and what the heck do those cypress knees actually do mm -hmm. and, after and, all these years you would and, think that people actually knew that and it's still an open question and how to <laughs> how to how to get out of the jaws of a gator yeah, well, fortunately, the swamps that I tend to, to frequent, we have not seen alligators yet. Right. I have right. encountered plenty of water moccasins, um, but have, have not had to get out of the way of alligators as yet. Okay. Well, Dr. Grave Davison, I appreciate you coming on the broadcast. How do you like this interview style? Did it work for you? Uh, did I enjoy this interview? Is yeah. that what you just said? Yeah. How do you like the style of it? It was delightful. Good. And I, I, I enjoy actually being able to engage in, in different styles so okay. not everything is the same okay. so that that gets that gets old after a while so this okay. was fun all right well i appreciate you coming on we'll have you going again sometime thank you all right enjoyed it all right bye-bye